Let's, uh, <clears throat> let's pray, and we'll, we'll turn our attention to the text. Father, the things that we are considering in Sunday school are so normal and real to us that it is almost astounding that anybody could question them. And yet, Father, we are living in a world and we're increasingly fundamental things like the identity of man and woman and the purpose of man and woman are being undermined and questioned. And so I pray that you would just <clears throat> make our foundation that much the surer and use this time for our profit and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, which is our Sunday School series. We're just dealing with some foundational issues, and I've, uh, <clears throat> we've talked about men and women, uh, male and female, that we have been created, which is foundational in so many ways. Um, <clears throat> I, I have been reading a very brief biography of Tesla, and in 1924, in an interview, he lamented... Uh, the way that women were encroaching upon things that were masculine and feared that they were losing their femininity. That was 100 years ago. I thought, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. But uh, So anyway, we've, we've talked about the fact that we have been created male and female. There are only two genders. We've talked about the fact that this becomes really the, the guiding principle of the homosexual lifestyle or however you want to call it. And again, I don't want to go back and revisit all that, folks, but I just want for us to understand what appears to be clearly God's perspective on this, right? In our world, it is <clears throat> argued as normal, permissible, celebratory, um, and even among professing Christians, uh, it is defended if the relationship is right. And it, some professing Christians, obviously not all. But, uh, but in the world of broader evangelicalism, this is a hot-button issue. And I don't know how much you follow. There's a guy, professing Christian by the name of David French, that just came out in favor and support of marriages or Senate Support of Marriage Act that normalizes homosexual relationships. And it's the same blah, blah, blah. Well, if it's a monogamous committed relationship, then it should be accepted. But I would just point out, folks, without going back and revisiting all the text or being vulgar, because the text of Scripture is not always coarse, but when God talks about it, he never talks about that. His perspective is never, well, if they're committed, then I can live with it. His perspective is always this. The very physical relationship between them is where the abomination lies. And so once, you, once we understand that, then, then you can't build any kind of nice superstructure on the foundation. The foundation is flawed. You cannot have an intimate physical relationship with somebody who is the same gender as you. It is just not possible. It is not acceptable. It is not tolerable. That is what God condemns. And so... That is what it appears that a large segment of professing Christianity has lost sight of. So anyway, we dealt with that. <clears throat> this morning, I just want to use our time 
again, to remind us of things that we don't know, that right, it is not just homosexuality that is governed by the creation of one man and one woman. It is all human sexual relations are identified or fall under that umbrella. And so, right, God created Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, and charged them with the propagation of the entire race of people. Um, And he did that under the covenant of marriage. They got married, and so we have a man and a woman and a covenant, and now we have the basis for human sexuality. And, right, I think that we would understand that the vast majority of human sexual immorality is not really homosexual in nature. It is heterosexual in nature. So two passages to to begin this morning, and, and I will just talk about a couple of things that we all recognize are difficulties that we ha- that have to be addressed that we can't really answer, but neither can we ignore. So Genesis chapter 4 and verse number 1, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And of course, we would understand that to be that in in the conception of Cain, she thought that what was being stated in Genesis 3 was being fulfilled. That through the seed of the woman would come the one who would bruise the heel of the serpent, and Eve thought Cain to be that. So that, right, it's not just any man generic, but I, I've literally gotten the man, the promised man of Genesis 3.15. Of course, we know that to not be true, Okay. And then jump ahead to Genesis chapter 5. So the Bible records for us the birth of Cain. It does not record for us when Cain was born relative to when Adam and Eve were created. Genesis chapter 5 and verse number 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Which, if I could just make this note, as you're reading through the book of Genesis, of course we have it in chapters and that's very helpful but the literary distinctions are found in that expression. This is the generation, or these are the generations. And that is where the author of Genesis is marking out his kind of major lines of thought. So so this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And so this is, right, this is the one flesh dimension he called their name Adam. Verse number three, and Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begat Seth, begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And, and you have that repeated formula in Genesis chapter 5. Born, lived, died. Um, <clears throat> the, the cemetery of the Old Testament. So here we have these two 
accounts. We have the creation of Adam and Eve, and then we have, right, within within the framework of their marriage, we have the production of children. So a couple of things, right? Not really pertinent to the text, but a couple of things that come up, which are, which is, how does this work chronologically? Okay, in other words, when I come to Genesis 5, 3, Adam is 130 years old. And at 130 years, he and Eve are still having children. Right? My assumption would be, I think the assumption of most people is that Cain came before Seth, but after the, after the fall. And uh, so, so, you know, again, with reference to chronology, and this we're not, I'm not trying to sort through chronology, you know, and deal with that extensively, but we have the creation of Adam and Eve. I think pretty quickly we have the fall of Adam and Eve. I don't think they existed in the garden terribly long before they fall. Soon after that, we have the birth of Cain and Abel. Um, <clears throat> in other words, folks, if we have other human beings in the Garden of Eden at the fall, then we're up against how to account for their sin nature. In other words, if Cain came, <clears throat> if Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden and gave birth to Cain in the Garden of Eden, and then Adam and Eve fell, how do we account for the sin nature of Cain, particularly in light of the fact that the Bible is very clear that the sin nature is transmitted physically through the parents. So Cain was born a sinner, which means that Cain had to be born to sinful parents, which means biblically that Cain's birth had to come after the creation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then there is no other record for us chronologically, with the exception of at age 130, Seth is born. Um, and so what we do not know, right, we, and the, the text of Scripture tells us that there were children born after that, but the text of Scripture does not tell us in any way if there are children born in between that. So we just, we just don't know that. And, and, we, you know, and I'm not trying to be funny or in any way crude, right? but we just don't have any biblical mention of the longevity or the physical ability of a woman to keep bearing children at that point in time in human history. Right? I mean, there, 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 is a, there is for women a, a, a window in which they are able to bear children, and there is a physical consequence to bearing children, and how many children could Eve give birth to? We don't know, and and we're just we're just not told that. We just know that there are other children, and of course, then one of the questions that arises is: so if there's Cain and there's Abel, and then they have marriages, where did those people come from? And Generally speaking, two answers are put forth. Neither of those are particularly adequate. Some people would argue that Adam and Eve were not really the only people that were created, that Adam and Eve are representative of an entire race of people. And there's a sense in which that is biblically true. 
<clears throat> Adam is the representative of mankind. But the text of Scripture just never gives us any wiggle room there. That it was Adam and Eve, and then they became the parents of everybody else that lived, which leads us to our other human conclusion that is equally problematic, which is that we had some kind of incest going on, that Adam and Eve's physical children were marrying each other and then having their own children. And of course, we do know that that is contrary to the law. So whichever direction a person goes, right, we, we don't have as much information as we might like. It seems to me that the Bible is very clear that it was only Adam and Eve and that all other human beings came from Adam and Eve, that they were not just two people out of a bunch of people that God created, which <clears throat> then leaves us with the possibility that brothers and sisters were conceiving children. Um, <clears throat> so again, I, you know, we can't, I can't speak to that. Nobody, nobody's particularly happy with that. It poses some dilemma in, in how to resolve that. But, but here's what the text of Scripture tells us. There is Cain. And there is Seth, there's 130 years of time that is not really accounted for because God is not trying to satisfy all of our curiosities and that there are other children that are born to Adam and Eve after Seth. And Seth's role in this, right, <clears throat> Seth's role in this um, <clears throat> is, you know, that he becomes then the on in continuing on um, in the line. So anyway, yes. Oh, it's absolutely prior to the law. So Adam and Eve are not violating the law. The question is whether Adam and Eve are violating a fundamental law of nature in doing this. Now, the answer to that is right. It depends, because there are cultures that deliberately practice the marriage of, of siblings. They willfully, deliberately do that. It is part of their culture. Of course, we also know, right? We know from our study and knowledge of genetics is that that is not necessarily beneficial physically. Now it's not. Now it's not. That's exactly right. <laughs> okay. Right. So, you know, again, if, if you were to push me on this, right, I, I just don't think there's, if, if there's another option, I've never heard anybody put it forth, right? There's only Adam and Eve. So I cannot believe that God created an entire race of people at that time, right? Because the text of Scripture will not let me go there, right? The other logical assumption is then that Adam and Eve's children were getting married and having children of their own. That's a little discomforting culturally, but the, but the Bible doesn't do anything to lead me away from that, right? So I would think that that's probably what happened, as you say, Right? And certainly God can do anything he wishes to human genetics in the, in the sense of protecting and preserving. 
but it is nevertheless a little bit squeamish because we know that the law is going to come along and condemn it in no uncertain terms. Yes. I'm not saying I have a problem with it. I mean, it doesn't create, personally, it doesn't create any doubt in my faith. I'm just saying that when you're having a conversation with people, particularly if you're having a conversation with unbelievers, this may be something that is going to cause a problem to them. Right? Where did Cain get his wife? It's an age-old question. And, and it, it appears, right, the only answer that human logic can come up with is that he got his wife from among his sisters. One of the things, and we're going to touch on this here, folks, right, is that there is one sense in which human heterosexuality is very rigid and very linear, right? I mean, one man, one woman, that's the paradigm. I'm getting ready to argue that. That doesn't alter the fact that the Old Testament is filled with stories of polygamy. And we can talk all day long about the fact, I mean, I could talk all day long about the fact that it, it's rarely presented positively, you know, it's rarely one big happy family, you know, and, and a lot of camaraderie. But nevertheless, it is not biblically condemned. I mean, at least not outrightly in those days in, in which, and, but there's, again, so let me just kind of walk through this and, and we, we can... <clears throat> And we can kind of go from there and see how, see where we end up. <clears throat> okay. The vast majority of, and I, by the way, I went through that with with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, because I had said last week that all heterosexual sins are anchored in the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden, and 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 then you know the question was, well, the law prohibited. Um, incest, and it appears that Adam's children were committing incest. And what do we do about that? Is that a reflection of God's intended design? But I think we can make a pretty safe case that God's intended design is one man, one woman. And and we'll look at some New Testament passages that argue that. Okay, so the vast majority of sexual sins committed by human beings, both in the Bible and in other cultures are not homosexual in nature, but heterosexual in nature. And so I just, again, would give us the caution that while we would oppose homosexuality and we should do it plainly, clearly, and lovingly, we should not think that having defeated, for instance, homosexuality at the legalized level, we have conquered sexual misconduct. Um, We have far from dealt with that so okay and we looked last week at first corinthians 6 9 through 11 in which god pointed out that he had saved some people out of that okay so let's just let's just think about some of the other heterosexual issues that are raised within the biblical world right the first one being just that, polygamy. Polygamy, plural marriage. 
Um, <clears throat> I would argue that monogamy is built into the creation. Uh, you know, I think Jerry Falwell was famous for pointing out that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. But we could also point out that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam, Eve, and wife number two. Um, <clears throat> and when the Bible talks about marriage directly, and what I'm getting at is when the Bible is giving us instruction in marriage, it is always giving us, almost always, with the exception of a couple of places in the law, it is almost always giving us monogamous marriage advice and instruction. It is always teaching that. So multiple wives do exist in the Bible. There is some biblical, I mean Levitical legislation concerning multiple wives as far as the equality of their treatment um, under the law of Moses. Uh, but look, for instance, at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll, of course, one of these days in our study of 1 Corinthians, get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 1. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. And by the time we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul has finally exhausted his list of subjects he wants to talk about, and he's going to begin to answer their questions. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And, and we're going to understand from the context that, right, and we, guys, okay, let me just take this opportunity and let 1 Corinthians 7, 1, right? Particularly in our world, you should keep just keep your hands to yourselves when it comes to members of the opposite sex. Um, <clears throat> just very, very cautious. Um, just, you know, I mean, be, be circumspect, circumspect and discreet to, to the maximum possible level. Keep your hands to yourself, your eyes to yourself, your thoughts to yourself. That's the safest way to go. But, but Paul has here in, in mind something more than just a, a, a hug at a, at an emotional event, <clears throat> right? It is, it is good for a man to keep his hands off of a woman in a, in a sexual way. And, and we know that from verse number two. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication. Now, notice the wording here, because the Spirit of God is being very specific. Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. So here would have been a golden opportunity for God to put some stamp of endorsement on polygamy. But instead, God puts his stamp of endorsement on monogamy. Have your own wife, singular. Have your own husband, singular. <clears throat> First Timothy 3.2. Turn there. <clears throat> You're familiar with this. <clears throat> Excuse me. So 1 Timothy 3.1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires the good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And we talked about this pretty extensively some weeks back in, in a Sunday night message. The, the literal expression is a one-woman man. And I think the implications of that are 
certainly include the subject matter of divorce, but are much wider than divorce. What, what is God's ideal? And by the way, folks, right? What is true of the pastor is not supposed to be true of only the pastor. This, the, right? This is what is supposed to be true of all God's people. And when, when, when congregations are looking for pastors, they're not looking for people who are really radically different from the Christian standard, but who are endeavoring to live to the Christian standard. So all men, what I'm getting at is all men should be one woman men. Which is going to go far beyond simply the idea of having one wife. It is going to be being faithful to one woman, whether she's your wife or whether not just married to one woman and We'll talk about divorce here in a little bit and, and what that might mean. But right, a one-woman man, this is, this is what God wants for men. Adam was a one-woman man. Jesus is a one-woman man. He only has one bride. Jesus is a one-woman man. God's, God's men are to be one-women men. That's the biblical ideal. <clears throat> Whenever we get into any conversation about plural marriage, which again, does exist. The first plural marriage was by an unbeliever in the book of Genesis. It was practiced by the Israeli kings. Solomon violated, right? He did exactly what God said. If you multiply wives, they're going to take away your heart. And Solomon multiplied wives, and they took away his heart. They distracted him from the Lord, and this is something that ought not to be done. <clears throat> and by the way, folks, this is just my opinion, but I think <clears throat> in light of where we are as a culture, right, in 1879, the United States Supreme Court ruled that Mormons could not practice polygamy. It was not only against the Bible and the laws of nature, it was against the Constitution, but in light of Obergefell and in light of the Senate's last law, I think we're going to be very hard-pressed, right? Or I think it's just a matter of time until some government somewhere legitimizes plural marriage and we're going to live in that world again. And again, I've talked about this, right? We can, we can throw it outside, <clears throat> right? We know, folks, we know clearly Right? I'm not saying this wouldn't be awkward, but if two men came in this morning, presented themselves as a married couple, professed themselves to be believers, requested membership in Westwood Heights Baptist Church, it would be an awkward situation, but not really a difficult decision. You cannot be members of our church. But what would we say if a man came in with his two wives and requested membership in the church? We we have a lot more homework to do to come up with the answer to that question. Although I would argue adamantly that monogamy is the biblical ideal and it is the biblical expectation. And I would hope that that would be where we would fall. right? That maybe in the Old Testament world you could get away with it, but there's just no room for it in the New Testament world. And there isn't, folks. There's no room for it in the New Testament world. So, no matter how we dress it up, <clears throat> 
right? And some of you may know, right? I mean, this is, this is not going to go away. There is a long-running television show now about a fundamentalist Mormon family called Sister Wives, and they get the camera put on them every week as they talk about what it's like to live in a plural marriage. And it is not a pretty sight. It is, it is, it is five lost people trying to be religious, and it's just, it, is, it is an epic disaster, but it is out there. And the New Testament standard is monogamy. And if it's not monogamy, folks, right? If it's not monogamy, then it's going to get labeled with a couple of other Bible words. And let me just move to them very quickly, <clears throat> right? The first of those words is adultery. Adultery. Adultery is the violation of the marriage covenant. You have to be married to commit adultery because an adulterer is breaking a vow. <clears throat> they are violating the terms of a covenant. It is prohibited in the law of Moses, Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. If you will look at Romans chapter 13, Right? It is banned under the law. Cannot do it. <clears throat> Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this. For this. Right? And now Paul begins to walk through the human side of the law. For this. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So what is the problem <clears throat> with adultery? Adultery is the failure to love your neighbor as yourself, to have somebody else's wife to have them physically to have them emotionally to have them mentally is a violation of the covenant god is very clear about this i mean there's i mean jesus just and and jesus just keeps narrowing right so to speak the noose um, <clears throat> go back to leviticus chapter 20 Leviticus chapter 20. <clears throat> In ver and verse number 10. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife. Right? See where we have the clear definition. The man that committeth adultery with another man's wife. Even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, 
shall surely be put to death. Now, if we were spending more time talking about it under the law of Moses, we would point out to the fact that God goes to great lengths, right, to, to, to provide a set of criterion as to whether or not the woman is a willing participant or the victim of a crime. But if she is a willing participant, she is equally guilty of death. This is punishable by death. It is a capital offense. <clears throat> So, and then Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, right, that the desire for another woman in your heart is adultery. So like I said, the noose keeps tightening. Under the law, you just weren't allowed to do it physically. And when Jesus came in, he said, no, that's what you've always been taught, and that's true. But let me tell you where adultery really lies. It lies within the heart. And we are in, by the way, folks, a covenant relationship not only with our spouse, for those of us that are married, for those of us that are saved, we are in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And when the Lord talks about our unfaithful conduct, he calls us adulterers. He called Israel adulterers, Jeremiah 5, 7, Ezekiel 16, 32. Ezekiel 16, folks, is just a scathing critique of the nation of Israel, all described in at times, very graphic sexual language. James says that if we love the world, we are adulterers and adulteresses. Right? Because salvation is a covenant. It is a covenant of fidelity. We made commitments to be faithful to the Lord. The Lord made commitments to be faithful to us. And if we break those, those covenants... Right? Then we have violated those covenants. And so we can be adulterers sexually with other partners, which then makes us adulterers spiritually by violating our covenant with the Lord. So, and this is something, of course, that the New Testament condemns in no uncertain terms. And then we're, of course, familiar with another word, which is the word fornication. In the Old Testament, the most common translation of the word, there's one Hebrew word that is used. It is used almost a hundred times. But the vast majority of those times, it is translated as either harlot, whoredom, whore, or whoring. It is only translated fornication three times. Second Chronicles 21.11, Isaiah 23.17, I'm sorry, four times, and Ezekiel 16.26 and 29. And if you just get your concordance and you start to read through the Old Testament and the uses of that word, you see that the emphasis changes. Right? The emphasis, folks, on the word adultery is on being a covenant breaker a promise that you made that you're no longer abiding by. And the emphasis of the word fornication is, of course, radically different. We probably all know that the biblical New Testament word for fornication comes from the Greek word that gives us our word pornography, porneia. 
Adultery is about covenant. Fornication is about conduct. When God calls somebody a harlot, he's talking about somebody who is engaging in long-term repeated immorality. Somebody whose lifestyle is characterized by that kind of immorality. The Greek word porneia is the word that they would use to describe a prostitute. So it has the same idea. Right? We have a Hebrew word that describes a prostitute. And a prostitute is somebody who is, right? I mean, just who sells themselves for this, who's given to this. And the Greek word porneia is describing somebody who sells themselves to this. Look if you would at Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> Just like adultery, this type of conduct is biblically prohibited. You're not allowed to do it. God's people are not allowed to do it. Of course, in Acts chapter 15, we have the big conversation about uh, circumcision and its role within New Testament Christianity. Verse number 19 of Acts chapter 15 Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. So... All those things have long-standing biblical prohibitions. And these are things that are imposed upon us as binding. New Testament regulations. You and I may not be involved in idolatry. And you and I may not be involved in fornication. And we're not supposed to eat strangled animals and we're not supposed to eat animal blood. Acts chapter 15 and verse number 29. Verse number number 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. These These are New Testament essentials. That ye abstain from meats offered to idols. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 deals with it extensively, the what and the why, that you abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. So again, <clears throat> these are obligations levied upon New Testament Christians. In Romans one twenty nine, I'm just going to race through some of these for the sake of time. <clears throat> this is characteristic of the unbelieving world. 1 Corinthians 5.1, which we are not very far away from dealing with. This was an issue in the church, and the church is faulted for knowing about it and not condemning it. <clears throat> Fornication. Ephesians, let me just read to you Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 3. 
Again, conduct levied upon us as New Testament Christians. What may we not do? Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Now, again, folks, right? In our world, in our culture, we have widespread, widely accepted sexual relations between men and women almost at will without consequence or condemnation. It is the accepted, expected norm of young people in America that they will become sexually active at a very young age. And the emphasis of our culture is really not to stop that. It is to stop pregnancy. So we don't want to stop the conduct. We want to stop the consequences. But God condemns the conduct. We see increasingly the widespread support of cohabitation. That you just move in together and you pledge yourself to each other, but you don't need to be married. But yes, you do need to be married. Because this is the standard that God has levied. And of course, we all know, folks, that in John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, and he says, go call your husband, and she says, I don't have one, he says, boy, that was slick, lady. You're very good. You've had five, but the guy you got now is not your husband. So there's a difference between being married and living together. And these are, right, these are sins, These are things that people are not supposed to do. These are things, folks, that bring the wrath of God upon people. That's what the New Testament says. God is angry with people who, as we used to say when I was a kid, shack up. That's not allowed. We see it through the widespread toleration and acceptance of pornography. This is nothing other than giving oneself over to fornication. This is universally condemned by the New Testament, by the Old Testament. It is not allowed. It is never allowed. It is not permitted. It can never be defended as a victimless crime. It is a crime against God. He says, don't do it. You may not do this. I prohibit you from doing it. No fornication ever one time. It is one of, it is one of the many reproaches upon fundamentalism. The way it has <clears throat> systematically worked to protect those who are engaged in sexual immorality rather than deal with them and expose them publicly when necessary. So... <clears throat> Right? So we have, we have clear biblical instruction about heterosexual sex crimes. The New Testament is clear. One man, one woman, that's a marriage. No adultery. No fornication. 
It doesn't matter how popular and widespread it becomes in the culture. It doesn't matter how little stigma is attached to doing it. It doesn't matter how many people we know that are engaged in it. It is against God. It is not allowed. It is not permitted. It is always a sin, and we should treat it individually as a sin, and if necessary, congregationally as a sin. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. I'm just gonna, I don't, I'm gonna try and just deal with this quickly. I've dealt with it at length in other places, and I don't know that I want. You know what? I'm just gonna come back to it. I'll just come back to it. So I'm gonna stop there. Right? My next one, if if you're if you're keeping notes for your own record, I was gonna 